Hey everyone, welcome back. Yay. Hello. Yes, we are back in your ear holes. History is gay is back back. from hiatus. Hello. We get back again. We did. Uh, We missed you. Thank thank you so much for your understanding and your patience and your uh, your pet photos that you have sent us through our hiatus. And thank you for just allowing us to take a breather and work on life things and just, like, be humans that can take a vacation, which is nice, um, so that we can come back stronger and more excited than ever and bring you more fun things without being, like, <laughs> Absolutely. frazzled humans. <laughs> I can't guarantee, I can't guarantee that we're not going to be continue to be frazzled humans but like yeah i mean it we will had allow break, us to be less break. frazzled humans hopefully <laughs> i would assume yeah um life is yes. always pretty crazy and this has been yeah. uh quite the year for both of us so <laughs> i'm not i'm not imagining it's going to just like immediately magically get better <laughs> but now we can at least have a little bit more of a rest and recuperated and yeah not doing research papers for like six weeks is nice Yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we came back a little bit later than anticipated, but we still had a couple of things to still get through. But we are back now with a really fun episode that we got to do on our break. Uh, Gretchen, you should you should tell the lovely people at so home what they're about to were, listen to. So we were... The last episode that we did when we were at our con family, TGIFM slash, we received an email and we were invited by the Dallas Museum of Art to come do a live podcast taping during their like special pride block. Um, so June 21st, so just about a month ago, we were flown down to Dallas and stayed in a nice hotel and recorded a live podcast <laughs> in front of a room of mostly strangers, which was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yes. With our like friends in the front row, which was delightful. We got to see friends in Dallas, and it was just a really, really good time, and it was a different experience for us. We got to be up on a stage, and we got to meet people at the end and answer questions, and we really loved meeting everybody Mm -hmm. there who came up and talked to us. Thank you so much. We had some really lovely conversations afterwards with people. Yeah, Um, it was really really lovely and just surreal to be like, oh my gosh, we're like official podcasters we just did a live show oh my gosh they handed us wireless microphones <laughs> and sat us down on we sat on chairs a, yeah we had a lot of fun <laughs> it was good yeah so so what you're gonna hear is gonna be a little bit different a little bit abbreviated um and this time we actually planned out our timing unlike our last time we tried to do a live show so that's what you're going to listen to And we will see you on the other side at the end to just do a little bit of bookending. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to History is Gay! 
a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle endies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Lee. And I am Gretchen. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm also naturally very loud, so I might need to pull this mic away from myself so I'm not, like, yelling at you. I mean, we're both two very loud people who like to talk a lot into microphones. Yes, that is true. Very, so, very true. the entire reason why we're here. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Yes. Yeah, this we are. Really cool. This is awesome. For those of you who are listening to our podcast in the future, ooh, ooh. Um, we are live here right now at the Dallas Museum of Art. Having an amazing time for Pride Month. Yeah, we went to watch some really awesome drag performance before we coming did. in here. We did. Really, really awesome. Uh, this is our first time doing a live show for uh, anyone that is not a room of like 40 of our friends. <laughs> some of whom are, are, are in the front. Some, yes, right some of now, whom so are here you. with us today. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. Um, so we're, we're super excited to be here. For those of you who have not heard our show before, kind of says it all in the title, History is Gay, but... What we do is we're two fandom and history nerds who are also queer. If you couldn't tell, um, the theme of tonight. And so we came together about a year and a half ago with the goal of creating a podcast to share all of the amazing stories of queer life throughout history, throughout the world. Uh, we kept talking about how LGBTQ people have always existed in history, no where you go, no matter where you go, but we're erased and sidelined and just kind of just friended away. They're just gal pals, right? Just, They're just, just roommates. Just gal fan pals. Uh, so we decided that if no one else was going to do it, we would. And uh, that evolved it via a whirlwind of research and jokes and jingles into what you're here to see tonight. Yeah. For, so for tonight's topic, we figured, you know, we're here in this amazing museum filled with lots of art. So why not talk about art? Because there are a lot of art is art, art is pretty gay. There are a lot of gay Super artists gay. <laughs> throughout human history. So why not? So we have, you know, as you can tell, we have titled this episode Transcestors. Look at art beyond the binary. Yeah. Any opportunity for a pun. In our titles, we will gladly yeah. take. We, I mean, we will force puns to exist. We yeah. love puns. Big fans of puns. We had one episode titled with like four puns in it, I think. Yeah. Like crowning. We, were, we like peaked at episode three. <laughs> with puns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were really proud of ourselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tonight we are going to talk about mythological representations of non-binary gender throughout the world. Then we're going to talk a little bit about a trans artist who has some pieces in the collection here at the DMA. And then we're going to talk about a more well-known artist who presented in gender non-conforming ways that you might not realize that she did. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, usually we start these off with just a discussion about content warnings. Sometimes we get into some pretty heavy topics here. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a little bit more of a lighter episode, but we want to let you know that there will be some images that uh, have some some naked body parts. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, but you're in an art museum, so you're probably, yeah. I mean, there are naked bodies everywhere. And uh, also there will be the swears because we can't help ourselves. Yeah, we do the swears. <laughs> Um, we also, uh, usually what we'll do for a format for an episode is depending on whether or not we're talking about people or a specific period in time, we'll kind of focus a little bit different. We're obviously going to be talking about a group of people tonight. And then we always end our podcast with our how gay were they section, which is our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. Right. And by straight, we mean also it can mean 
you know, multi-gender attracted, attracted to the same gender, or also non-binary, gender non-conforming, any not, not, and all. Not boring. Not, right. Interesting. Fabulous. Yeah. All Fab- forms of to, fabulous yeah, to people. Follow, to follow, to the follow top. up on, <laughs> on Madison Morph. All yeah. forms of fabulous people. So yeah, we, uh, we're going to get started by talking about, like we said, some ancient and world mythology. We're going to start off with the beginning, with a capital B. We are going way back in time here, folks. Talking about mythology, everyone's favorite super gay topic. Because guess what? Deities aren't straight. Religion is hella queer. At all. In any way, shape, or form around the world. That's never been true. Religion is really like hella queer. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to take you on a trip to the ancient Near East, also known as Mesopotamia. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this badass god slash goddess named Inanna or Ishtar. Show of hands if you've ever heard of this deity. Yeah! Nice. Oh, look at this group. I'm so happy. Um, so Ishtar or Inanna, known as Inanna in the uh, Sumerian language and Ishtar in the Akkadian language. Uh, She is known simultaneously as the goddess of war and chaos and the goddess who embodied sexuality and fertility in all of its aspects. So goddess of brides and ingenues and sex workers alike. She is a god of paradox, so it's no surprise that there would be ambiguity and androgyny attached to the gendered manifestations of this goddess. So there's lots of variations on the goddess's uh, traditional gender markers, presentation, and roles, depending on how she's being presented. So, in her warrior aspect, Inanna is often shown dressed in like some sort of flounced robe, and usually has weapons in both hands, and then often sometimes has a beard to emphasize her masculine side. In her goddess of love, AKA like even back then they had beards. Yeah, <laughs> in her goddess of love aspect, uh, AKA like feminine aspect. She tends to laud her own s- sexual beauty. Uh, the king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, who ruled from 16, from 668 to 627 BCE, describes Ishtar of Nineveh in a hymn saying, like the god Ashur, she wears a beard. So got a couple of things here. So this is actually in the DMA's collection. Um, I don't believe that it's on display because it's a very tiny bead, but you can see a couple of different, you, there's, uh, this is called the, it's cylindrical seal of a king presenting to Ishtar in her two manifestations. So you can see kind of two different, it's hard to see, but two different representations of Inanna. Pretty cool. She's also the Venus star, which is really cool. And as the morning star, Venus was female, goddess of love who ruled the day, and evening star, male, the bearded god of the night. And so you'll usually see this eight-pointed star representing Inanna which is super cool. And then we have some some other representations for some other gods here that we would get into if we had time. We also have, this is this is like my favorite quote. We've got this hymn from a poet in the time period uh, that says, though I am a woman, I am a noble young man. Her coming forth is that of a hero. Lordship and kingship he placed in her hand. When I take my stand at the rear of battle, verily I am the woman who comes and draws near. When I sit in the alehouse, I am a woman, but verily I am an exuberant man. When I am present at a place of quarreling, verily I am a woman, a perfect pillar. When I sit by the door of the tavern, verily I am a prostitute who knows the penis. Yeah, I know. Uh, The friend of a man, the girlfriend of a woman. That's gay. 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, so so it's like straight from the straight from the words of Inanna right. herself. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so we've got this this uh, this kind of gender fuckery going on here. Told you I was gonna swear. Can't help it. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, this is Enheduanna, who was one of the uh, premier poets and high priestesses of Ishtar. And funny, fun, fun story, because misogyny sucks, and a lot of people don't know this, but she's actually credited as one of the very first credited authors, like writers in history. Not just like first woman writer, but like first ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, misogyny. Um, another fun fact, uh, lions are associated with Inanna slash Ishtar, which I thought was really awesome, especially because, I don't know if any of y'all have heard, but there's like a couple of prides of lions that had a bunch of lionesses grow manes and start to assume male gender roles in their prides. So so even her no. avatar is pretty pretty queer. Yeah. Super, super. And on as like animal like representation, she can't even keep it straight in her animal manifestation. She, it's just all queer. Yeah, all it's just it. it's just super, super gender bendy all the place. So, oh, yeah. Um, so yeah. So this the, you'll see on um, on the entrance of her gate in Babylon. There's a whole bunch of different lions. There's also eight pointed stars and flowers. And this is a representation of Inanna with a double snake staff. So it's another one of these images in her kind of more like fashion where she has multiple weapons. Last bit I kind of want to talk about here is we've got, so this is, this is all, sorry, I'm going to go back one more. She, um, this is all, you know, realm of mythology, right? Not quote unquote real life. So how did what was represented in Sumerian belief expand out to quote unquote actual culture? For that, we need to introduce a lovely little segment we like to do in our episodes called Word Word of of the the Week. Week. This would be the time to cue the music. Word of the week. Gay word of history. So yeah, so word of the week um, is talking about the badass gender variant priests of Inanna and Ishtar known as the Gala and the Kurgara. Um, so this is a representation from about 2450 BCE of two Gala priests. And they were known as singers and performers, and these folks knew how to party. Uh, the cult of Inanna and Ishtar uh, and the festivals that honored her were in- involved reversals of age, status, and gender. And the Mesopotamians even believed that Inanna uh, had the power to transform the gender of her worshippers. From the poem, Passionate Inanna, from Eduana, it says, To destroy, to create to tear out, to establish are yours, Inanna. To turn a man into a woman, and a woman into a man are yours, Inanna. Uh, religious festivals usually involve dancing, singing, boisterous disorder, and cross-dressing, embodying Inanna's destruction of the boundaries between gender. So we've got this right up here, um, this hymn. The people of Sumer parade before you. The male prostitutes comb their hair before you. They decorate the napes of their necks with colored scarves. The women adorn their right side with men's clothing. The men adore their left side with women's clothing. The ascending Kurgara priests raise their swords before you. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just like pray to a deity and be like, I want to be a different gender. And they're like, okay, cool. There you go. And that's how I wake up every single morning. It'd be awesome. It'd be great. Mood. Uh, So yeah, I could talk 
all day and go into way more detail about the awesome gender bendy cultic practices and followers of Inanna slash Ishtar, but then we'd be all here all day. Um, so we'll just leave you with this fun reference. Um, if anybody likes comics, there is a representation of Inanna in a book called Wicked and Divine, where Inanna is a god that is modeled after the late great prince. Yep. So, and is in a long-term loving relationship with Baal, who is the Canaanite storm god. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's real good. It's real gay. You got the eight-pointed star here. Look at this. Yeah, they did. They, they clearly did their research when they when they crafted these things. It's actually I love this comic. It's actually really good. Highly ah. recommended. So, yeah, that's what we got for Inanna. Let's move on to our next trip into mythology. Yeah, we're going to move a little bit south and west. And we're going to go to Egypt. Yay. Yay! I love Egypt. I never outgrew my Egypt phase. Like, how many of you guys, like, had that weird Egypt phase when you were, like, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old? Yeah, I had one of those and just never outgrew it. Um, I still <laughs> love Egypt. <laughs> so when I was like, ooh, we're talking about mythology, I'm going to talk about Egypt. Yay! Whoa. So this is Hoppy. Or, I mean, you could probably say happy if you want, but I, I say happy just because it... I mean, we are... History is gay and gay, happy. happy is a synonym. <laughs> gay is a synonym for happy. Yes, happy, yeah. Gay. So, yeah, this is happy. He is the ancient Egyptian god of the inundation. And the inundation is the annual flooding of the Nile River that brought fertility and the ability to grow crops in an otherwise infertile desert. So he's a pretty important god. He was believed to live in a cavern, which was the source of the Nile River near modern-day Aswan. And his main temple was in Elephantini, which was near the first cataract or waterfall of the Nile. And the, you know, devotees and priests were dedicated to making offerings to ensure a good inundation, uh, which would lead to a bountiful harvest. So, yeah, both... Oh, I got... Whoa, my clicker's getting ahead of itself. Uh, happy clicker finger. Um, this is Hoppy here. Both of these, which I will get into why we have two. So, as a god of fertility in Egyptian culture, he had very, you know, considered to have these kind of father-like masculine traits, considered to be a deity who provided, you know, balance to the cosmos, especially when it comes to the Nile River, which was considered to be, you know, the lifeblood of the Egyptian empire. Like, Egypt doesn't exist without the Nile and the annual flooding. But at the same time, Hapi was, you know, nourishing and growing our, our more associated with, you know, so-called female deities. So he was somewhat of a mother figure too. And his artistic representation clearly evinces this kind of androgyny. So he's depicted with, uh, as many of you will recognize, this like ceremonial false beard, which you see on a lot of Egyptian pharaohs. And also with the loincloth, which are kind of masculine artistic, artistic traits. traits. But he also has a very protruding belly and these, you know, Hanging breasts, which for some reason come out of his armpit. Yeah. Um, it's almost as bad as like uh, Renaissance like artist. Yeah, Renaissance artist, just Michelangelo, like, hmm, let's sculpt a delightful masculine peck. What does a titty look like? Let's just cut an orange. What does a lady titty on. look like? We just, you know, just, I guess I'll just throw some some clay on there and that's what a lady titty looks like. like I've never seen it's one. It's like a, like a perfect sphere. <laughs> yeah. <But> I have <laughs> signs that a male artist in the Renaissance has never seen a lady titty, but has seen lots of male nudes. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so Hoppy has these kind of hanging pendulous breasts the way and I this like my breasts. large belly. Yeah. Breasts should always be pendulous, right? Um, 
is you know is more feminine and especially this crown so in this picture he's wearing a crown of lotus on his head and wearing floral crowns in ancient egypt was also kind of a feminine artistic trait so he's like being depicted as both masculine and feminine at the same time so the next slide uh he also was blue because he was a water god so he was blue or green this is another one of those images where we have two um, Hopi was often represented as a dual god. And this side, um, you can see this crown right here is actually, this is papyrus, and that represents lower Egypt. And on this side, the crown is a lotus and represents upper Egypt. And so this was a depiction of like the union of upper and lower Egypt for the upper and lower regions of the Nile. And this, you know, was often carved into the base of a pharaoh's throne as a representation of them being, you know, the ruler of all of Egypt. So interesting, what I think is very interesting is that Akhenaten, if you don't know who Pharaoh Akhenaten is, you've all heard of King Tut. Well, King Tut is Akhenaten's daddy. <laughs> um, literally his daddy, not... Daddy not, Tut. Is a daddy Tut. Yeah, I know it's uh, kind of dangerous to talk about daddies <laughs> tonight. Not that kind with of this, daddy. With this, or, with this audience, but <laughs> liter literally his, literally his, his daddy. His, his biological father. So Akhenaten... This is Akhenaten right here. This is a figure of Akhenaten. This is Akhenaten's wife. And this is uh, one of their daughters. So Akhenaten is depicted in a similar way to Hopi. And many scholars actually think that he was trying to model himself after Hopi. Part of it is that Akhenaten was a monotheist, which is like super taboo in ancient Egypt to be a monotheist because they were all polytheists. One god? <laughs> what is this? What? Why would we only have one? So, and that's why Tutankhamun who we know as King Tut. His original name was Tutankhaten because Aten was the sun disk god who Aten worshipped. And so part of what they think was going on was that like with Hapi, Aten was trying to embody that god, the deity should represent, you know, the union of both genders. So as you can see, um, he looks a little bit more like his wife. They both have this prominent belly here. They both have, you know, larger breasts. And most male figures and pharaohs were not depicted this way. So I think it's interesting to think about because then you have, you know, a king of Egypt who's attempting to embody this kind of balance of gender. That, like, they, as the avatar of the deity, were saying, you know, deities should be, should be beyond gender, should embody all gender at once rather than represent one singular idea of gender. And actually, if you want to see a relief firsthand, this relief is upstairs. In the ancient Egyptian section, you can find this relief of Hopi. So here's Hopi here. Um, and then there's a little bit of the other side of Hopi. So you can see this is the, the dual representation of upper and lower Egypt with Hopi. So I saw it earlier today. It's pretty cool looking. It's fun to just see these things in person rather than looking at a screen. We took some selfies. Yeah, we definitely took selfies. We're those kind of people. Yeah, we are. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think it's interesting to think about Hopi as a as the kind of the union of upper and lower in Egypt, as well as this, you know, union of ma of male and female roles or characteristics in Egyptian society. So as a deity that embodies multiple aspects at once, he was seen as a figure of harmony and union and balance. And like, how cool is it that like the idea of embodying multiple genders or kind of existing beyond binary gender was considered to be a, a sign of balance and harmony and union. And that's something that I think we could learn a lot from in modern society in thinking about that as like a sacred space, that like the sacredness of being beyond gender binaries, that that's something sacred and embodies union and balance. And I, I, I just think that's really cool. 
I think it's perfect that we end the Egypt discussion talking about that balance and unity because there's a lot of that in the next place we're going to go. So next, we're going to take you a little bit a little bit further east into India. So, oh my god, y'all. There's so much gender fuckery among Hindu gods. <laughs> so much. I mean, among the, like, countless super gay stories and, like, homosexual encounters, uh, there are, are a, <laughs> a lot of... I almost did a spit take there, Lee. I mean... You've been doing this with me for like a year. You you, you don't expect that? <laughs> I mean, it still manages to surprise me. It's great. Uh, so there's like, there are many elements of gender variance all over Hindu mythology. Texts have examples of gods changing gender, appearing as different genders depending on circumstances, and even combining forms to become androgynous beings or existing as entirely genderless entities, which is a mood. So <laughs> in Hindu belief, uh, there are a lot of diverse approaches to conceptualizing God and gender, things that we could not begin to even try to summarize in a few minutes. But there are a lot of different beliefs that say that the concept of God is not either male or female as a concept in some ancient Indian literature, um, and that the message at the heart of many Hindu epics and representations of divinity is that humans are essentially a combination of masculine and feminine qualities, and these energies, hey, balance each other. Whoa. It's almost as if wow. mythologies all around the world tend to inform one another. Right. Wow. Right. It's well, almost as if all, all human beings seem at some level to recognize this is not a connected. It's not a binary, guys. Speaking of connection and combining, um, first, I know that's not a real gay. Uh, so we're going to start <laughs> off uh, by talking about that combining of gods, this and- androgynous combining of deities. And I wanted to first talk about Shiva and Parvati. So there's the god Shiva, who is usually considered to be the embodiment of masculinity, and his wife, the goddess Parvati, who you can see both of them here in a piece that is here in the DMA. So this is them on a tiger skin rug, and they often form into one god called Ardana Rishvara, which translates to the lord whose half is a woman. And what I think is super cool about these representations of Hindu deities is that they're often shown just split straight down the middle. So we have this image from the 1700s. So you can see we've got uh, Shivan side on one side and a Parvati feminine side on the other. Usually you have Parvati on the left and Shivan attributes on the right. So we've got another one here. This is a, a statue. This is in the St. Louis Art Museum. And you can see, again, we've got this like nice split down the middle and you can see difference in earrings. There's like one breast and you can even see the difference in the clothing. So the story in the text is that Parvati wanted to share Shiva's experience and asked for their forms to be physically joined. And one Hindu scholar explains this as as, quote, if the inner masculine and feminine meet, you are in a state of perpetual ecstasy. Uh, yeah, right? Also in this form, uh, Shiva can represent the totality that lies beyond duality and encompasses the sum of all consciousness, which has no gender. So often, you know, it's associated with the communication between mortals and gods, as well as the communication between men and women. And we also see this same kind of representation with a couple of other gods. There is a combination of two gods 
named Vishnu, who is uh, shown here. This is a piece that's upstairs. Um, this is Vishnu and attendants from about 1026 CE. Um, where? I know how to work a slide thing. Um, but yeah, so You're this- You're not alone. This, what? We You're both not, don't know how to work the clicker. I mean, we're both gay disasters, so it's it makes true. sense. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so you can see this piece here. I think it's really gorgeous. We saw it. It's very large. It's awesome and completely breathtaking. And so this is him and his female consort, Lakshmi, which this piece is also in the museum. So this is, we have Vishnu and Lakshmi uh, and then Garuda down here. And again... We see this when they come together into Lakshmi Narayan, which, again, we have this split down the middle. This is from the 17th century. This is a piece in the British Museum, which is actually one of the pieces that inspired us to come into this topic. So, again, we have difference in earrings, the one breast, and we have different patterns in the pleating of the clothing. I believe that we did actually see there is a Lakshmi Narayan piece upstairs yes. as well, in with the other two pieces that we just showed. Yeah. It was really cool. Um, yep. It didn't show up when we were looking at the online collections, but you can go up and see it. And there, there is a piece that shows this this split down the middle, which is really fun. And then, not to, not to be outdone, Vishnu doesn't just like to combine with Lakshmi and become this one deity. Uh, he also likes to turn into a female avatar many a time. So in many myths, he frequently takes on the female avatar of Mohini uh, and even has sex with Shiva in this form to produce a dual-gendered son named Ayapa. Another story from the Mahabharata is when the god Krishna, which is an incarnation of Vishnu, takes on the form of Mohini and marries the hero Arayan in order to give him the chance to experience love before his death. He had volunteered to be sacrificed to the goddess Kali in order to win the war between the Pandavas and the Kauravas, and no one had volunteered to marry a man that was about to be sacrificed, understandably. And so, like a trooper, Krishna turns into Mohini and marries him and remains in the Mohini form in mourning and as his widow for a significant amount of time after his death. And I thought this story was particularly significant because Aravan is actually considered a patron god of some transgender communities in India today. So the story is commemorated every year in a ceremony and a celebration called Tali or Kuvagam, uh, where Isra, who are um, third gender Indian folks who perform various religious roles and, and various roles in society, uh, take on the role of Mohini and essentially marry Aravan in a mass wedding that is followed then by an 18-day festival, which ends with, in the ritual burial of Aravan and the Ishras mourn and dance and break the bangles that they wear and they're also presented with like floral necklaces and so these are some images from a uh, Kuvagam festival and I just think it's really beautiful that there's an entire 18-day festival dedicated to this story. Yeah, so speaking of gods who liked to change gender, we're going to actually go over to Europe and we're going to talk about someone that most of you have probably heard of. We're going to talk about Loki. Loki. Yes, this Loki. That Loki. Um, <laughs> so many of you are probably familiar with Loki from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, played by Tom Hiddleston. He's a pretty popular character with uh, ladies and dudes and envies of all kinds. A lot of people find Loki to be very attractive. He's not my cup of tea, but I understand that this is something that many people find appealing. Um <laughs> 
So um, he's a sex symbol. He's a shapeshifter. He's a troublemaker and a bit of a rebel. And not just in the comics and the Marvel Cinematic Universe either. In the Norse myths, he's both a helper and a hindrance to the gods at various points. But most of the time, he's just up for some mischief because that's what Loki does. He's a chaos Danny. He just, you know. I mean, why not? He just wants to have fun. Um, and one of the ways that he has fun is by shapeshifting. So in the MCU, we mostly see Loki change his human form from one person to another. He was Odin in Thor Ragnarok, for example. But what you may not know is that in the original Norse myths, uh, Loki could not only change his shape to become various humans, he could also change into various animals and even change his gender. Um, he spent some time as a salmon and a bird and a fly and also a mare. That's right. He was a female horse. And as part of attempting to get a builder to stop working, it's a really, really, really long story, but he was just up causing mischief and he was trying to get this, this human builder to stop working. He turns into a mare and leads away the builder stallion. And the stallion is named, uh, Svadilfari. And Svadilfari, uh, really liked Mare Loki. And, uh, according to the prose Edda, quote, Loki had run such a race with Svadilfari that some time after bore a foal, it was gray and had eight feet, and this was the best horse among gods and men. Something is wrong with that horse. <laughs> so, uh, this is the horse that, uh, Loki, the child that Loki bore, the, the horse child, this is Sleipnir, and he's a horse with eight legs, and he becomes Odin's mount, and is associated with, like, shamanic ecstasy and seeing visions and all that kind of stuff, because mythology's super weird sometimes. Like, Loki turns into a female horse and gives birth to an eight-legged horse, and you're like, okay, sure, fine. Which is, is writ then ridden by its grandfather? Right, yes. Yeah. Mythology. Mythology's weird. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Loki was also known to have spent some time in the form of an elderly woman. This is a depiction of that elderly woman named Thok. And so, in another, you know, Loki just being Loki, doing his Loki thing, he, so, one of Odin's sons named Balder was slain in battle. And in order to like move on to Valhalla, Balder had to be mourned by everyone in the world. So Loki, because Loki is Loki, decided that he would take the form of Thok, this giantess, and not weep for Balder, thus forcing Balder to stay in the Norse underworld because Loki was kind of a shit. Um, Thanks, Loki. <laughs> so that was what Loki did. He decided to turn into a giant woman and not cry. Um, I just want to sing Steven Universe I know, now. I do too. <laughs> uh, all he wanted to do was turn into a giant woman. Um, so it is also attested that Loki at one point lived in the underworld as a woman for eight long winters, milking cows and giving birth to children. He really likes to give he, birth. He really did. Like that's like his main hobby. Yeah, is turning into women like, and know, giving I'm, birth. I'm bored of trickery. Let's just have some good. Let's just some, have some babies. Some, let's just have some babies. Because that's what it I do. It doesn't I'm... matter the species or the size or <laughs> no. the number of legs. That's, <laughs> that's what I do when I'm bored. That's what I do when I'm bored. I have some babies and then <laughs> I am less bored. Are we supposed to be fighting against? <laughs> Only <Virginity>. not. <laughs> Only I don't actually do that at all in any way. Um... At one point, Loki also ate a woman's heart and again gave birth, <laughs> but gave birth to all of the female ogres in the world. Thank you. So again, according to the prose Edda, Loki ate some heart 
the thought stone of a woman. Roasted on a Lindenwood fire, he found it half-cooked. Loki was impregnated by a wicked woman from whom every ogress on earth is descended. So yeah, he just really liked having babies. And we even in the modern, the modern MCU actually has given us a version of Lady Loki. So this is... This is Loki in his, you know, male form here. And this is the female form. And this is another image of, of Loki in his female form. So Loki has disguised himself in the body of Thor's lover, Lady Sif. And we even have Loki at one point disguised as the Scarlet Witch, which is pretty cool that we have, you know, gender bendy Loki in the, in the modern MCU comics. But so far they just seem to be disguises that I am totally up for like a canonically gender queer Loki in the MCU. I think that would be awesome. Maybe Tom Hiddleston needs a break and we need to get like a genderqueer actor to come in and play Loki and we can have some canonically genderqueer Loki. Don't and- say that and make me disappointed that it's not going to happen. I mean, I'm already disappointed that it's not happening, but I mean, I live with disappointment all the time. That's what fan fiction's for, right? Yeah, that's that's what fan fiction's for. <laughs> so yeah, that is that is our journey through mythology and there's so many other stories. We I have mean, many more. I was just I was just reading the Wonder Woman comic the other day, and it was talking about Aphrodite's child Atalantiades, who is also like canonically both male and female at once. Oh yeah, they're pretty awesome. I mean, we didn't even get into like a lot of Mesoamerican representation. Oh of gender gosh, fluidity. yeah. There's there's a lot, y'all. We will. You'll just like we said, to, religion is really queer. You'll just have to listen to more episodes of our podcast. Oh golly. Oh no. Uh, so yeah, so moving away from the ancient world, we're going to go into kind of a more modern era and talk about a artist that actually we did not know anything about and is oh. thanks to Jesse from the DMA. Thank you, Jesse, for introducing us to this wonderful artist. So we're going to be talking about an artist named Anton Prinner, who was born in 1902 and is a Hungarian painter, engraver, in- engraver, <laughs> engraver, sculptor, and a trans man. Look at that. So this is a piece the DMA has. Uh, I forgot to put in the title. Apologies. I was very sleepy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> just I, look everyone. when we talk. Look when we get a little bit more into him, you'll understand that would actually make sense as a title for uh, his things. <laughs> it so, would make sense. Yeah. Just uh, so he was born. Uh, December 31st, New Year's baby in 1902 in Budapest, Hungary, uh, was assigned female at birth. There's not a lot known about his early life and upbringing. And honestly, we couldn't find a huge amount about him because he lived an incredibly reclusive life and his full history is pretty obscure. But what we do know about him is awesome. So in 1920, he studied painting at the Budapest School of Fine Arts and then went to Paris in 1928 where he settled and began at this point dressing in men's clothing, cut his hair, was asking folks to use male pronouns and took the name Anton. And uh, he was often at this time found smoking a pipe and wearing a beret, obviously trying to be the most French. Just imagine, if you will, close your eyes and imagine a teeny... Four foot nine queer mime. Okay? Just just imagine that. Think about what pops into your head. Here's Anton Printer. Queer mime. Tiny mime. The most French queer mime. There's a little cigarette in his hand. Trying real hard. He's already my hero. Um, <laughs> so yeah, between 1928 and 1932, he took a break from painting to become obsessed with the occult. Like you do. 
very common, very popular thing to do if you were in Paris in the 1920s. He studied occult scientists, uh, occult sciences. Uh, it's amazing that they brought us here to talk. I know how to talk. We do the um, words. We do words well. Um, so he studied occult sciences, esotericism, and mystical philosophies, which would later show up as major themes in his work after World War II. He started painting again in 1932, and he leaned heavily into a constructivist period, which is an art style where various mechanical objects are combined into abstract structural forms. So it was like that first sculpture that we showed you before. And this is also where he learned printmaking and began to dabble in engraving and sculpture. And uh, for most of the 1930s, he was really involved in constructivism, but then late 30s, 1937 to 1939, he begins to move towards more figurative art and sculpture in the round. So this is actually one of his sculptures in the round. It's called Woman with Braided Hair. This is actually a later one, 1948, but this is one of his more famous sculptures. And then at the onset of World War II, he actually went into hiding and was living in a garret and at this point devoted himself entirely to drawing in pen and ink. He was doing work in India ink at the time. And these are images in which uh, one scholar quotes, nightmare and eroticism mix. Surrealistic and expressionist images of naked bodies writhing in pain while other male nudes explore, expose their sensuality. So World War II was fucked up time right basically there, yeah it does so it's unsurprising some images. kind of art this that comes out of world war ii personnage of a clump at kog 1939 and this is the one that really so this is apologies for the uh very pixely image uh this is from an art auction website there's not a lot of his uh, it's really hard stuff. to find images of his yeah art. really hard to find images but this is like just these bodies writhing and twisted and it, it like i said it kind of blends this eroticism and horror element that I think is really fascinating and very emblematic of the time period. When he returned to sculpture after the war, he went back to his occultist roots and dove full tilt into an obsession and fascination with Egyptology. Yay! Not relatable at all. Not at all from the two folks who never left their Egypt face. So he worked on etchings and illustrations for the the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead. He's my hero. He's so cool. Uh, and he produced a series of sculptures on the same theme that he exhibited in 1948. He illustrated a total of 66 tablets and later even illustrated a work on tarot. Um, so these are some really freaking awesome images from the Book of the Dead. Um, and these are like engravings. This is La Femme Tendue. Here's some more. For those of you who are listening and wondering what the heck we're talking about in the future. You can look at uh, our show notes. We're going to have notes these on our images website. On we'll our have all these notes. pictures. Wow. So yeah. He also at this time, because he wasn't busy enough being a badass artist, invented a new technique of printmaking uh, called I don't know how to pronounce Pyrogravure. Go ahead. Papyrogravure. There you go. See, she does all the pronunciation for me. <laughs> um, so it's a technique for printmaking using cardboard instead of the unwieldy copper plates that were prevalent at the time. So, you know, in case he wasn't busy enough. So by the late 1940s, he's uh, actually friends with Picasso and Andre Breton. Um, and if you've listened to us before, you know that these two we're folks not, here... We're not fans of Picasso. We're not fans of Picasso. But I... Uh, oh, here's, here's another image of him sculpting one of the images from the Book of the Dead. 
Here's a picture of him with Picasso being super chummy. And, you know, even though Picasso is a douche nozzle with some really misogynistic ideas, I thought it was really fun that Anton Prunner, as like a trans dude, is hanging out with this guy who has a very specific image of machismo mm-hmm. um, and saying like, I can do Picasso better than Picasso. And uh, Picasso actually called him uh, the little woodpecker, a.k.a. the small man who makes large statues and often would also call him Monsieur Madame. And we can't decide if we love or hate the idea of Monsieur Madame. Yeah. We're like, can't that's kind of cool, but also... Mm. Yeah. And then in 1950, despite urgings from Picasso and Breton, telling him, like, stay in Paris, you're going to get really big, you're going to get famous, he moves to Valerie and takes up ceramics, working as a potter. He also, at this time, produced, like, huge murals for a church and did a series of sculptures, huge sculptures, including three called Man, Evil, and Hatred, which is I the most... I just find it hilarious that the same person who's making, like, a horror, erotic horror art, like, eventually is making murals. <laughs> for a church just throw it up on the church right I, well and i love man evil and hatred like that's like the most metal thing i've ever heard yep um he eventually abandons sculpture work altogether for painting consumed by anxiety at the time and convinced that those at the uh ceramics studio he was working at were stealing from him he wrote i want to do things that no one will like that way no one will steal from me Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah, it's a choice. It's it's absolutely foolproof. So he had a few exhibitions before returning to Paris in the 1960s, but his life after Valerie is much of a mystery. Uh, He passed away in 1983, penniless and more private than ever. Uh, And just wanted to wrap up a little bit. So some of his themes in his art, a curator of a printer exhibit in the Ernst Museum in Budapest, uh, Judge Julia Serba, notes that, quote, the theme of twinship and double identity is found in all printers' work. So this is an image called Double Personage. And the androgynous world of ancient Egypt was especially alluring to him. To go back to Hoppy, scholar Ashley Dawson notes that, quote, the transfiguration of sexuality acts as vital source of spiritual balance, ushering the soul into a state of androgyny in order to completely embody the power of both phallic creation and the maternal womb. So this was perfect for Printer, who was showcasing his journey through gender identity via his art. Um, he even leaned into the man and woman in one themes by adopting a cosmic signature, ever the esoterist, um, and his signature, instead of signing his name as printer, started to become two intersecting triangles. Uh, his works feature powerful androgynous beings, pieces like Squatting Woman Frog, which looks like it came straight out of like Tut's tomb, and The Woman with Large Ears, I don't know how good he was at naming his uh I mean they're descriptive. Sculptures. I mean yeah, that like it works. Uh and then a nice thing to end on regarding Printer's views of himself and his own kind of, you know, fun, reclusive, esoteric nature. People say artists have to try and understand themselves, which is what he he later wrote in a journal. I'm doing the best I can not to understand myself, which is a lot harder, a lot more meaningful. I'm a non-existentialist. I'm not myself. I'm everybody. Okay, Anton. Deep thoughts, Anton. Deep thoughts, Anton. Deep thoughts with Anton Printer. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of people who hated Pablo Picasso, Frida Kahlo also yeah. hated Pablo Picasso. So, this is our artist who many of you may not realize has some really interesting presentations with in kind of a gender non-conforming way. And we're we're getting low on time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna 
go real quick here through Frida Kahlo because most everyone has heard of Frida Kahlo. Um, She's a Mexican painter best known for her symbolic art, indigenous cultural dress, and yes, her eyebrows. Everyone knows about the eyebrows. So um, she was also bisexual and we have a whole episode already out on Frida Kahlo. So if you're interested in hearing more about her bisexuality and kind of a lot more detail into her biography and her life and everything of all of that, uh, you can listen to that on our podcast dedicated to her. So this is actually a piece that the DMA has on, I believe it is on loan to the DMA called Self-Portrait Very Ugly. It's one of her uh, earlier pieces done in like a fresco style. So it looks kind of like a Roman fresco, like you might see it like Pompeii or something like that. So, yeah, I'm going to skip over. A lot of people know a lot about uh, her history. She was a Mexican artist born in 1907, greatly influenced by the Mexicanidad art movement, um, which was part of a desire to reclaim Mexican indigenous culture and art. Her husband, Diego de Rivera, was a muralist in the Mexicanidad tradition, and that greatly influenced a lot of the art and what she depicts in her art and her choice in, you know, gender presentation and wearing the kind of indigenous cultural dress. Many people also know that she had a bus accident when she was 19 that left her almost dead. She had fractured ribs, legs, collarbone, was impaled by an iron rail through her pelvis, and she spent months in rehab with chronic pain and spent the rest of her life dealing with chronic pain and, and you know, injuries as a result of that accident that she uses in her art. Um, oh, right. This is another piece that the DMA has on loan. So both of this and the previous piece are up in the Latin American art section. Um, this is, you know, you can see her indigenous cultural dress there. That was something that she wore a lot of. Um, I just love her little tiny dog. She was a big animal lover and there's a lot of animals in her art. So this is called the broken column, and this is a representation of her experience of pain in her body. So she spent a lot of time reflecting on like her experience of being a bo- embodied person and what that means, including gender, but also you know physicality, pain, suffering, what that means. So her art, above all, was a reflection of herself as a multifaceted and complex person. It has post and anti-colonialist themes. Fuck colonialism. Fuck, she- fuck, 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 colonialism. Yes. That one worked. Yay. That's one of our favorite jingles. We try and work it into every episode we possibly can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it asks questions of identity, experience, bodily pain and suffering, as well as questioning gender, class and race in Mexican society. It is both deeply personal and experiential and political. It is a lot of things all at once. So what does this all have to do with gender? Well, what is less known about Frida is that when she was young, before she took her kind of well-known indigenous style of dress, she liked to wear men's clothing and even painted herself in an androgynous way. Oh, wait, no, this is another thing in her art. This is a depiction of her being very queer. This is two nudes in a forest. She was not a straight woman. Um, if you couldn't tell, if you couldn't tell, uh, so this is from a family photo in 1926. And if you can't tell who Frida is, this is Frida right here. Frida Kahlo. She's 19 years old uh, and she's wearing her father's suit. So in another photo from the same day, this is another photo of the same day. And again, here is Frida right here in the center. It's one of those things where if you didn't know that this was a picture of Frida Kahlo, you probably would not recognize her. So uh, she's in the middle of this family lineup made up of the women of the family and a younger male cousin. So she's still in her suit with a cane and she seems to be being depicted as the dominant male in her family as like her father's successor, like the son who's going to take over, you know, and be the patriarch of the family, which is just really interesting that Frida Frida Kahlo of all people like 
This is, as a friend of mine said when they looked at these photos, like, that's not something you do on accident. Like, that's that's something where that's you're... Not, like, that's not just, like, a fun afternoon. No. Like, this is an intentional, like, exploration of gender. Her her husband, Diego, even depicted her kind of in this kind of androgynous flapper style, um, which was pretty common in the 1920s. Androgyny was pretty in vogue in the 20s and 30s with the flapper movement, but it is still interesting. She's got, you know, short hair, flat-chested um, a bit more of a masculine body frame. And she even has a painting of herself in a men's suit. This is self-portrait with cropped hair from 1941, um, where she's holding a pair of scissors, you know, close to her genitals here, which could be a threat to her husband, Diego, because he was unfaithful. It could be a representation of the menace of the patriarchy in Mexican culture or her own disquiet with gender norms or all of them at once, because that's the kind of thing that Frida did. Uh, layers within layers of meaning and symbolism in Frida Kahlo's work. She's a parfait. She's a what? Oh, she's, she's a parfait. parfait. Yes. Afraid of parfait. Um, so while this doesn't necessarily mean she was trans or even genderqueer, what it does highlight is her own ongoing and complicated relationship with gender and gender roles, which is something that isn't widely talked about when we talk about Frida Kahlo, which you see throughout her art in various other ways. So one of the things that, I mean, the reason why we kind of wanted to end on this note is because this is something to be on the lookout for in art that... A lot of artists are, you know, not straight or do not conform to, you know, the gender binary. But because it can be unsafe to depict that, you know, very vividly or clearly, you can see these kind of themes showing up in their work. Um, and it's just something that we wanted to encourage people to be on the lookout for. Like, don't mm. bypass don't overlook that. Don't do what a lot of historians have done and just kind of erase non-binary representations in gender, whether the artists themselves or in the art that they're creating. To like take some time, absorb that, think about that, and realize that there's a lot more of it in art history and in human history than we've you know recognized up to this point. Because like we said, we have so much more we could talk about. We cut like three people from this presentation because we didn't have time for them. Yeah. And that was just scratching the surface. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I guess, uh, Lee, real quick, uh, how gay were they? Just how gay? Just like all of art history. All of art history. All of art history. Yeah. Um, let's see. I would have to go with probably like 12 out of 10 mummies in a Hungarian garret with <laughs> Frida Kahlo's tiny dogs. <laughs> So, okay, see, that's funny because I was also thinking 12 out of 10, but I was thinking 12 out of 10 eight-legged squatting frog women. <laughs> this is often how we that, end that's our, okay, our podcasts. Yeah, we just make up things. I mean, We make up our own scales. Come on. I mean, when everything is this gay... Who needs, who needs a binary scale, am I right? right? Who needs, who needs a yes. base 10 decimal <laughs> system scale? We don't. Yeah, so that's... That's it for this episode that you all have lovingly come on this journey with us for. Gretchen, where can people find you on the internets if they want to check out some of your work? Uh, well, you can find me writing media analysis on thefandamentals.com or my personal website, gnellis.com, or talking about nerdy things on Twitter as at gnelliswriter and on YouTube as Baal the Bard which I mostly talk about, A Song of Ice and Fire Theories and Analysis. Lee, what about you? So when I'm not nerding out about uh, old-timey queer folks and fun gay mythology, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and can usually be found 
crying about Xena episodes on my couch. So if you want to come join me in that, <laughs> I'm always happy to have friends. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, History is Gay also is on the internet as a collective entity. We can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast if you still go on the Tumblr. Twitter at History is Gay Pod. And we have a lovely email address where you can drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. And then uh, if we've got time, we're going to do some questions. But we end every episode with a little tagline, and we would love for you guys all to participate in it. Cool. Uh, yeah, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna be video recording this. Yeah, yeah. So that's it for history is gay. Until next time, stay, stay queer. Yeah, good job, everyone. Woo! Thank you. Everybody. So thank you. So there you have it. That was our live episode at the Dallas Museum of Art. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much to Jesse. Carillo, manager of adult programming at the Dallas Museum of Art, for inviting us to participate at this event. Um, it it was, was so much fun. Yes. And she was lovely and made us feel so welcome. Yes, absolutely. If you want to check out the DMA, you can go to dma.org. And many of the items that we discussed in the episode are featured in their online collections, along with many more. And just in case you missed it in what we were talking about, our slideshow is actually going to be in our show notes. It is embedded on the website, so you can just go to the show notes. And if you want, you can, you know, click through it along while you listen to us talk about things. And you can see all of the all the art and the photos that we included. As well as uh, going along with us messing around with the clicker and not knowing how to use a slideshow clicker, which was half the fun. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Some housekeeping things for the very end. Uh, Some things coming up. I, Lee, hello, will be in Orlando, Florida in August for podcast movement. So if you're going to that, I will be doing a panel with some other LGBTQ podcasters. That should be really fun. It's hosted by CBC Podcasts. Um, I get to talk with some cool Canadians. Yay! And I'm really excited I think I think you I think you mean a a <laughs> I'm really, a. A. Uh, I'm really excited as as much as I'm not excited to be in very sweaty summer Orlando weather but yeah that'll be fun the panel will be on Friday August 16th so if you are heading there please let us know and I will try to say hi Uh, And as usual, if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up on the show, and much, much more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our patron community, along with the amazing... Noah Williams. Megan McCusker. Willow Hoving. Sarah Gibhart Engel. Devin Tui and Kim Kopiski. Thank, Thank you, you all. all. Thank you so much for your support. Again, we literally couldn't do this without you. No. Nope. Uh, the entire reason I am able to go to Podcast Movement is because of Patreon. So thank you very much. We're very excited. Also, we have fun, just little exciting merch update. We have stickers now on the store. We printed out some of our Geographic Queers stickers. Uh, the last time when we went to TGIFM slash, and now we have them on our website. So if you want Yay. some merch and you want some cheap merch and fun stuff to stick on your water bottle or laptop, go for it. 
I'll send them out to you with like a smiley face, something like that. They're really um, ni- they're yeah. really nice, high quality stickers too. I enjoy they're, them. They're they're perfect for water bottles. They're like nice vinyl stickers. Yeah, Aren't you they? can put them in your dishwasher. Ooh, yeah. Uh, lastly. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community. Um, and we already did our our lovely little sign off and our goodbye during the show, so we will just see y'all later for the next one. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>